Ladies and gentlemen, please notice that exits are conveniently located at the front and rear of this auditorium. When leaving the theater, we suggest that the exit at the front of the auditorium will allow you easier access to the parking areas. Thank you. And away we go. That's, a, that's right. a new thing I'm working on. <laughs> when you always love that, let's I just love love the questions. I don't want right into that. that. There are some, I'm not saying this is a good movie. Oh, what? That is Finnish Willem Dafoe. He, he looks, looks just like Willem Dafoe. He, I thought he looked very familiar. You're, don't throw out a fact. You are correct. You're brother, correct. you should do some facts sometimes. Do some facts sometimes, but don't take my facts. <laughs> I'm pretty confident your brother doesn't listen to the Forgotten Cinema podcast, but if he does, boo! Hi, I'm Mike Field. And I'm Mike Butler. And you're listening to the Forgotten Cinema Podcast. Each episode, we highlight a film that, for a variety of reasons, was forgotten by audiences. Whether it's because a more popular movie was released at the same time, or the movie simply didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. We'll discuss what we love about the movie, or perhaps don't love about it, but we'll always recommend you revisit it. If you enjoy our podcast, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And welcome. All right. Nice. So I'm going to jump right into it. Are you ready to have a conversation? I see what you did there. Yeah. Very funny. Very funny. Not really. But I've been waiting one whole week to do that. Seriously? <laughs> really? Not that's, really. That's pretty sad. Well, we are going to be talking about the conversation, as Mike just pointed out. This is a movie from 1974. Its release date is actually April 7th, 1974, which is a Sunday... I was confused about the release date because I saw like three different release dates. Well, I think we're going to run along. We're going to run into the same problem or not, not problem, but we're going to run into the same situation where there's not a lot of information back in the seventies. Yeah. Because this movie actually came out April 7th and the week before is the 31st, which was the Sugar Land Express, which we've already done. Yes. Season two. two. Right. So I guess, so it's really just not like, it's not like when you listen to some of the movies that we do that are more recent, they've got like three or four movies that have come out around the same time that are on the same date. Right. Competition. There's not much, not much of a competition back then in terms of winning the weekend as as it were now. So. Yeah. Maybe one or two movies because you didn't have, this was before. Multiplexes. Star Wars is what kind of created the rise of multiplexes. This is right? correct. This is that's that is accurate. So yes. we're looking at three years before that. Right. Right. Well, quickly about the conversation. It has a runtime of 113 minutes. It's rated PG, which is a little strange since there's some blood and stuff in it. I noticed. <laughs> Production budget of 1.6 million. Uh, it's opening weekend. I don't know. I didn't have I didn't have that info. But domestic and worldwide were actually the same because I don't. I think it opened in the UK, but not, or, or it opened in France. I have like the I have the worldwide a little bit more only by like two hundred thousand by like ten thousand yeah, yeah 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 so it's four point four million was was its take as I said before on the thirty first of May which is the week or so before is the Sugarland Express on the twentieth was the Great Gatsby if you listen to our other episode about Sugarland I've already talked I probably already talked about this movie or these two movies in terms of when they were released mm-hmm. on May first you had the Lords of Flatbush and on May twenty fourth you had Thunderbolt and Lightfoot so I mean honestly. Like 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 we just said, it's not about you know what other movies were released at the same time. That's not right. Cinema back then was not about that. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who also wrote it, he also produced it as well. Uh, if you do not know who Francis Ford Coppola is, he is responsible for the Godfather trilogy, Apocalypse Now, uh, among among a lot of other classic movies that you've probably are aware of, or maybe you're not. I'm not sure. Music by David Shire. 
David Shire uh, more recently had done music for Zodiac, the David Fincher movie, which was in 2007. Uh, Norma Ray, 2010. Um, Norma Ray did not come out in 2010. I'm talking about 2010, the movie. Cinematography by Bill Butler, who is responsible for Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Grease. And I have some, I have a factoid about Bill Butler. We'll talk about that later, though. Is he is he somewhat related to me? Is he a distant cousin? I don't no, know no. Because I actually, <laughs> I actually admire Bill Butler, so no. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> uh, I'll run through the cast, and then we'll just we'll dive right into talking about the movie. All right. Uh, Gene Hackman is the lead. He plays Henry. Excuse me. He plays Harry Call. Uh, John Cazale plays Stan. Cindy Williams as Anne. Terry Garr as Amy. Harrison Ford as Martin Stett in a role that it's he's not the lead. Mm. Uh, an uncredited role of of the director for Robert Duvall and Alan Garfield as Bernie Moran. Now, um, I realize I just blew through all these people without telling you what other stuff they've done. Uh, Mike knows Gene Hackman's uh, Lex Luthor from Superman. He's also from French Connection and Hoosiers. John Gazelle is known for Dog Day Afternoon. Godfather, he plays Fredo in Godfather, and then he's in The Deer Hunter. Cindy Williams, you probably know more as Shirley from Laverne and Shirley, right? Yes, she's mm-hmm. Shirley. And she's also an American Graffiti. Terry Garr from Mr. Mom, Close Encounters, Young Frankenstein, Harrison Ford. Uh, come on. I'm, I'm not going to have to sit here and tell you what he's been in, right? On our notes where it says where we have the where are they from column, I just put he's Harrison Ford. Exactly. Robert <laughs> Duvall from Days of Thunder. He's also in Godfather. He plays um, Tom. Constantly. Yes. And then Alan Garfield is from Beverly Hills Cop 2 and The Majestic and a bunch of other stuff. These people are all well-known actors. If I'm assuming that you are listening to this podcast, you are aware of that. If you're not, please look up their work because these are all very good actors. Yes. And they are very good in this movie, which was nominated for three Academy Awards, did not win, was nominated for writing, best writing, best picture and best sound. Did not win any of that. And Hackman did not get a nomination for best actor, which was considered back then when that happened was he was snubbed because he is uh he's very good in this movie it's actually what his favorite movie he's ever acted in and it's coppola's favorite movie he's that he's done so or at least that's what the research was that i noticed <laughs> all right so this movie is also one that mr butler did not see uh you never heard of it right i had never heard of it no okay so this is going to be one of those movies where mike's gonna it, mike it's mike's first impression of the movie it's not just it's not just a movie that he has seen a long time ago in film class and he has studied and he's talked about. It. So he is coming at this from a new angle, a different angle, someone who has not seen it. Right. So, Mike, what'd you think? Yeah. <laughs> go we're just break the, plot, break the whole or thing. We're down. just going to go right into what I think. Oh, you know what, Mike? Give me the plot. <laughs> <laughs> so, before I tell you what, it, what I think, let me tell you guys, if you haven't seen it, what it's about. Essentially, Gene Hackman's character, Harry Call, is a surveillance expert who is in the San Francisco area. He is. Current mission or job is contracted by the mysterious director to surveil these this couple who is speaking in this very crowded square at midday. So Harry, with his partner Stan, record a conversation between the couple, which seems very innocuous. It's a very, what are we doing? Oh, I don't know. Do you want to go here? Oh, I don't know. But it's it's got layers to the conversation. As Gene Hackman obsesses and obsesses over these tapes, he finds maybe there's more to the tapes than meets the eye. And he's hesitant to give the tapes over to the mysterious director when Martin Stett, played by Harrison Ford, is here to pick up the tapes. Now, Harry is a very paranoid, cautious fellow, as one would be if you were working in the surveillance industry. He doesn't trust anyone. He doesn't trust that he's never being watched, listened to, surveilled. So he does not want to hand this tape to anyone but the director. Uh, regardless of how much he's getting paid for the job, which I believe is $15,000, which in 1974 money is 
I did not do that math. Probably a ton. Probably. I can do that while Almost you're doing your plot. Yeah. I'll look it up. Do, do that. And then I'll cut you off. <laughs> so as, as the film goes by, Harry becomes more and more paranoid about the tapes he gets until he finally comes to the realization, his own self-realization, that these tapes of the couple are going to get the couple killed by the director. The, the director will kill them for what's recorded on them. Harry eventually gives up the tapes reluctantly to the director. The director kind of gets the tapes from Harry, regardless of whether Harry wants to give them up or not. And Harry then rushes to try to get to the location the couple is going to be to find out what the director will do to this couple once he finds out what they're talking about. Um, oh, and then I don't believe this. this what, is, what does it say? It, oh, I take it back. I thought that was million. Uh, it says it's about 76,000. I believe that. <laughs> so I thought it was like 76 million. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Sweet Lord. All right, carry on. So that's essentially the, the plot. Harry gets this this tape about this couple and wonders whether or not to give it to this mysterious person who may or may not do harm to the couple. Harry has had experience with that in the past where his tapes, his surveilling has gotten people killed in the past. Well, so that he has very that, nervous the about incident, before. right, because he left New York because he left uh, a New family York, was yeah. murdered, shaved. I don't know why that was shaved down and murdered and. I think to get rid of any DNA trace for him. Right. And he, um, so he had left New York cause he's, this is takes place in San Francisco. Yeah. Right. So it's essentially Harry recording this tape and then trying to keep these tapes from this director and find out what the director would do with these tapes once he got them. Right. And obviously there's a twist at the end, which Ooh. is really interesting. And it's, it's uh, the entire movie is about, you know, it's about surveillance and Big Brother, which I found interesting, like in a time before all that was kind of a big, a big deal that everyone thought about, which I, I really like about this movie. Well, the movie's main uh, has a main influence in the movie Blow Up with uh, Mike, Mike, Michelangelo Anton, Antonioni. I can't say the name right. He's a French filmmaker or no, Italian filmmaker. Duh. Jeez, Mike. And it actually was criticized for almost ripping it off. Actually, William Friedkin criticize the movie for being a complete ripoff of blow up. But um, that's where Coppola got his inspiration, which he has said that that's my inspiration. And, right. and part of that part of blow up, the question that they ask you in that movie and in this movie is the conflict between surveillance and participation in terms of you're, you're watching somebody, but you, you know that harm is going to come with them, come to them do you get involved? But your job is just to record. Right. And also perception versus reality. Like what, what is Harry actually hearing in those right. tapes? What is he, you know, like when he goes at the end to the hotel room, he sees things, but he doesn't really know what he's seeing or hearing. And he's flipping out because it's, it's, it's not, they don't really do a, a, a it's, I like this movie quite a bit, but they don't do, they don't do a great job of, showing you Harry's almost spiral down when he gets into the, when he gets into the hotel room, his spiral is very sudden. It's right. Exactly. Right. It's really quick. It's right in that room. He doesn't know what's happening. He he's flipping out and we're assuming that he's flipping out because he's thinking of what happened before. He's having a breakdown. Yeah. But you never really see any of that. You never, that's only given lip service by Bernie Moran who brings it up when they're having their party at the, at his workshop. Mm -hmm. And you, so you don't really, know the significance of how that affects Harry. And to be fair, Harry is a character who's supposed to be socially awkward. He's introverted. He doesn't, he doesn't get along with people. He says it. I don't understand people. I don't get people, you know, right. yep. you know which is, which makes him perfect for surveillance. Cause he just has to watch people. Yes. 
and just make sure he gets the conversation. He has to get the facts. Like, just this is what it is. He doesn't have to put any personal spin or opinion on it because he he can't, which is cool. Right. And that's that was the genesis and th- of the movie. And the theme of the movie is is that kind of, you know, what I just said, surveillance versus participation, perception versus reality. What I enjoyed in the opening is it just starts off, you know, it just starts off in the square. Yeah. And they're talking, but you do not hear any of the, you don't hear the conversation completely. And you, you have to discover because it's being recorded from three different mics, one on the ground that's following them. Uh, uh, I guess a, a parabolic mic, either from the window or from the top of the roof. I don't know which one. And then yep. another mic. There's one in the windows, one on the roof, and there's one, there's one following them around. And he pieces it together in the movie in about the first 45 minutes of the movie. Not even when he pieces it together the first time, you don't know what they're saying, but then he starts piecing it together again to hear like different things. Like, especially when he hears the line, like he'd kill us if he had the chance. Right. Right. Or says, he says that some, you know, he'd kill us. He says, he says it. If he he'd kill us, us if he had, yeah. to, if, you know, if he found out, if he found out. Right. Right. So we discover the conversation as Harry discovers the conversation, which is a nice little piece. You know, we don't get everything right up front in the beginning of the movie. Right. What I also found interesting is that it changes as well. The, the, the lines of dialogue seem to change um, attitude and kind of tone slightly um, to kind of make it more menacing. Like her, her line about uh, we're just walking in circles or whatever changes as they go. The line about the homeless man, they're they're their way they they speak the line changes slightly mm-hmm. so that when Harry's listening to it with a different kind of eye, we listen to it with a different kind of or listen to it with a different kind of ear. We're listening to it with a different mm-hmm. kind of opinion as well. Right. Oh, look, that's terrible. It's not hurting anyone. Neither are we. Oh, God. Every time I see one of those old guys, I, uh, I always think the same thing. What do you think? I always think that he was once somebody's baby boy. So I was talking about the cinematography with Bill Butler. He actually replaced... Uh, the original cinematographer Haskell Wexler, because Wexler and Coppola couldn't could not couldn't work together, couldn't agree on a style. I read that, but it's very interesting because he wanted to Coppola wanted to uh, copy a style Wexler did when he directed a film. Right, he wanted to do Coppola wanted to do cinema verite. Yeah, which is for those who don't know, it's cinema verite was born uh, in the '60s in France. It was a French film movement. And it was about using more uh, natural re- reactions and, and, and dialogue that people use in everyday life. So people just simply going to the store to order some food. You know, you didn't see that back then in movies. It was always like the conversations were cinematic. Mm-hmm. They were conversations that you would not hear in everyday life. But like this in, in the 60s and, and obviously bleeding into the 70s. And now you started having movies that were showing you what real life was like and showing it on screen and not hiding it. And, and, and even if they were just kind of like toss away lines and stuff like that, you yeah. see it in Godfather too. Like in Godfather, there's a bunch of stuff that's conversational and stuff like that. And even think Scorsese is pretty, right. That ton well, even to the, uh, even to the extent of like, like a, like a scene, like well, I've talked about the scene before in the podcast in, in the movie for Jaws mm-hmm. when, or uh, even better, I won't even do Jaws close encounters of the third kind when he's at the dinner table, he's building the mashed potato devil's, uh, what is it? Devil's uh, backbone? Devil's peak thing. What is the name of that? Uh, Whatever. He's devil's backbone. He's building, that's a movie. He's building, uh, <laughs> he's building the mountain that he sees in his, in yeah. his vision. But while he's doing that, the entire 
dinner is having its own little thing going on. The kids are out of control and what's talking and everyone's just kind of talking but, but, but back and forth. And that's kind of like what cinema verite is about. It's just the, what happens in everyday life. They don't how they're not hiding it. Cause back then before the, before the sixties and the fifties and forties, it was, it was all that stuff. You didn't, you didn't hear any of that stuff. Like I said, it was all cinematic right. and, and yeah. movie movie like and, and, and stuff like that. So that's what, that's how Coppola wanted to shoot the conversation. Wexler didn't. So Butler came in to replace him, Bill Butler, not Mike Butler. And this is actually the second time that Butler has replaced Wexler on a movie. The first one was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, really? Different director, Milos Foreman, but same kind of concept, which is, you know, that's weird. <laughs> All right. So what stood out, what popped out most to you into this movie? Because I can go through, I can go many different ways. Well, what kind of you finished the movie what did you what really stood out for you because i just i'm a you said you liked it right i'm a i did i thought it was really really well done so what popped out for you uh i think hackman's character is a very interesting choice for protagonist he's just so closed off so unrelatable so paranoid he he's, definitely becomes, he's paranoid. He's like a little paranoia. He's, he's but then he, paranoid. no, 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 no. I, I, I agree with you. He's like, you kind of see a glimpse of the paranoia and like, don't touch my stuff. You know, this is how I like how things, how I like it. When I don't talk to stand. people. Yeah. And it just gets right. even further and further. But as then you go. as you, when you, when you realize the tables have been turned, when he flips out in his room and he's ripping everything up, that's when his paranoia is going full blown. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so I really liked that aspect to it. I really like the way it's shot. The storyline's really great, and I I really like the twist at the end. I, I didn't see that coming. Which twist? The fact that they the fact that the couple he should the whole time he should have been defending the director from the couple, and it was the couple right. They were, were setting up. There was basically a big. The only thing I didn't get was whether Stet was involved in that in that whether setup. it was a true setup or not. Right. So yes, I don't I don't know either. I would assume he does. He did. Well, you're trying to get the director to the hotel room so that they can kill him there. Right. Which, uh, quite honestly, how how are you gonna you can simply do that? Can't she just do that by saying, "Hey, meet me in the hotel room. Let's have a fling. Let's look. Up, let's hook up." I think him and her and the director are married. I, I right. Yeah. So let's let's have a date night at the hotel. I mean, I mean, it, it seems like an awful it seems like an is. awful roundabout way to get to to set the director up. Yeah, but you know, whatever. It's a great movie, so I'm yeah. not gonna I'm not gonna nitpick <laughs> that. It's a movie that was kind of all these movies in the seventies. Uh, we've talked about them before. A lot of these movies that deal with distrust and, you know, conspiracy, you know, deals conspiracy with conspiracy like, big time. You know, yeah. Go- they're not trusting your government, like the parallax view, which we talked about, uh, like the, a noir type movie, like Chinatown is like that, like in terms of like the, the mystery and this, the conversation is like right in the middle of that. And there's just like a, a, a slew of movies in the seventies that, that deal with this topic. Uh, you get uh, like the Watergate scandal too, and all that well, kind of happened. The Watergate, this time. right. The Watergate scandal was actually after this movie came out or right. Cause they shot this beforehand, but this movie came out around the same time and people were correlating this movie with that. And it wasn't really, well, like he came that. up with the idea in 1966. So it was definitely thought of at least way before. Sure. It. Right. So, and did you know that? Well, did you know, <laughs> A lot of the technology they used in this movie to for the recording of the first scene or just in general, they actually used that same equipment was used in the Watergate scandal that he didn't know. Like it was just like a happy coincidence. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. It was the same tech, I guess. I mean, I thought that was pretty true. I mean, I, I enjoyed that they didn't, a lot of the technology seemed real and believable. It wasn't like they went overboard. It wasn't perfect technology. You know, he needed the three things. He's listening to the different tapes, looking at all the old 
tech from the, the uh, early 70s was kind of cool when he goes to the convention. Right. When he's walking around and the guy's like, call on the phone. And then you call and then hang up, call back. And then I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. Play the harmonica into the phone. They had this tech back then. Like, I just <laughs> like when people are kind of like laughing about like, oh, you know, put the tape over your web camera because they can look in. Oh, they can't do that. They were doing this uh, 40 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Yeah. So, the, the, yes, they can. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like seeing Harrison Ford in a role where he's not the lead and he's kind of like the bad guy? He's not really a bad guy. He's just a man of opportunity. I, I did. I was surprised Harrison Ford was in this because when we, you were talking about the film, you I didn't, didn't mention him. Up. Yeah, no. Uh, so I saw Harrison Ford. I was like, oh, man. And this is pre-Star Wars Harrison Ford. Right. Post-American graffiti, though, but pre-Star Wars. Well, that's, yeah, Coppola uh, worked with him. Uh, wasn't he part of American graffiti? No, that's, they were all friends, uh, I'm all over with my facts. No, no, don't <laughs> ignore me. Please ignore know. this. But, uh. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting because I remember Harrison Ford always talked about how hard it was for him to get a job and stuff. So this must have been pretty big for him. And I know, you know, reading up on some of the facts about this movie, he's the way he got into the film and expanded his own role. Was well, he was right. He wasn't supposed to be as big as he was. He's just supposed to be the assistant. No right. name character, like one scene. And then he came in and he w- he decided that he was going to play the character as a, as a gay man. Right. And he bought like a i think he bought an outfit right he bought a 900 hundred dollar suit which was almost which was a little over four thousand dollar in today money. right and it was a obnoxious green suit the same one he wears at the first scene with uh <laughs> okay yep with the uh, hackman's character and coppola at first didn't like it at all but then when ford talked about his character and stuff like that coppola liked it so much he actually had the set designer yep. come up with his uh stets office gave him a name and gave him more scenes what do you see? Oh, Here's your money, $15,000 cash, as well, you asked. Yeah. And these are our tapes? I had an arrangement with the director. I was to give those to him, uh, you see, personally. I understand. But he's not here this afternoon. Matter of fact, he's out of the country. And he asked me to get the tapes from you and give you the money. And that actually reminded me of the conversation that we had on our very first episode about Tom Hanks and how he talked about an actor's role is to figure out your character, not to rely on the director or to tell you what you should be doing. You should find something. You know what I mean? You need to work on that. If the director doesn't like it, he'll tell you. Right. Right. I I thought that was, that's right there. I think that's something that's a great, a great point right there. Now, let me ask you this. Do you see people doing that now? Do you get that sense that that's being, that's that concept is something that people do in today's modern cinema? I think good actors, yeah, will do stuff like that. Like, there, there are little pieces here and there that I like, um, like like Lance Henriksen, like the story, like, but that was, this is, again, this is the 80s. This is sure. little, like Lance Henriksen coming into the Terminator pitch meeting dressed all in leather like that um, as the Terminator, like, basically creating the dress. And the producers ended up going with Arnold, but he scared the crap out of him dressed like the Terminator. And then, like, even today, like Heath Ledger in the scene in The Joker where he does the slow clap when he's in the prison cell, which has become one of his iconic poses, wasn't supposed to happen. The scene happened where Gary Oldman was promoted to commissioner and Heath Ledger just did it. No, no direction from the director or whatever. Right. Nolan didn't but say, that's hey, what do you it. want. As a director, that's what I want. And he, he, he loved it and he put it in. Exactly. But I, yeah, great actors take risks like that. Not great actors don't. I think cutter actors don't. I think like in terms of Heath Ledger's that the clapping, if you know your character, 
you know, it's not so much of a risk as you say. It's your character. That's what your character right. would do. Yeah, it's not so, a you know risk. what I mean. Right. So it's it's absolutely like yeah, all right. It's a risk for actors who are afraid to upset the director or upset to, afraid oh, yeah. to do anything other than what they've been told. You to have do. to have confidence in your ability, absolutely, in, in any walk of life and anything you're doing. If you don't have confidence in what you're doing, you're not going to get promoted. You're not going to go anywhere. No, yeah, people are just going to well, they're just going to like dismiss you. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, no, absolutely. This original cut was four and a half hours long. Did you know that? Oh my God. I was so glad. <laughs> I was nervous because I know films from the 70s had tend to be a little drawn out and longer. And I was like, oh man, oh no, no. An hour 53 minutes? I can't deal with this. probably considered long back then. I'm okay with that. Well, the four and a half hour cut actually had Abe Vigoda in there as Harry's lawyer. Because there's a whole subplot where Harry actually owns the building where he's in. Because when he gets on the phone and he, he asks the landlady, how'd you get into the room? Yeah, yeah. And I said, I thought I only had the set of keys. I guess apparently he owned the house or he owns the apartment. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but like they cut it. And then also Mackenzie Phillips is in there as his niece where she's trying to run away and he talks her out of it. So there's like a whole, like, like two subplots in here that like just don't exist. I'm okay with them cutting. No, no, yeah, I agree. I mean, although I, how do you get from four and a half hours though to my gosh. Watching the movie. When he's playing the saxophone, he's got that huge speaker on the floor. I'm like, his neighbors must must really freaking hate him. And at the end, when he's ripping up the floor and banging on the ground, I'm like, who hasn't called the cops on this guy right now? I just figured he was going. Uh, he was just out of his mind, paranoid. Well, weren't the cops coming to stop him? I mean, yeah. But that makes a lot more sense if he owns the building. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. And I actually like the last scene of the movie when he's just sitting there and the camera's moving back and forth. That was supposed to be that is supposed to be like a surveillance camera that's how they did it to go back oh, okay and forth like that's supposed that was like that's how they wanted to end it which i thought was awesome that that's pretty cool i yeah. didn't know i didn't realize that but that's really cool yeah um i like that he just kind of went back to playing the saxophone like there's nothing he can do it took him that long to get to that place but he's just like all right right now let me since we're talking about i brought the camera move up right the scene when they go to the party and they're in his workshop. Right. And the woman, I uh, can't played by, uh, what's her name? You talking about Elizabeth McRae yes. playing Meredith? Yes. So she's obviously hitting on him, flirting with him right. for a reason because she steals the tapes. The, the When they're in the middle of the room and he's up against the post and she's talking to him and he starts telling her about like, would you, if you're a woman, would, you know, if you were with somebody, a guy was with you and, and. He kept telling you to wait. Would you wait for him? Even though, you know, he was really had a tough time talking. He's basically trying to relay the story of his relationship with Amy. Right. Terry Gar's character. Her name is Amy, right? Yeah. Maybe Amy. where she's like, she, cause he goes and sees her before and, and she's like, I don't want to see you anymore. Cause he just doesn't come. He never opens he up. Open right, up yeah. to, right. So he's having this conversation with Elizabeth McRae uh, about this. Meredith. You say, what's her name again? Meredith. 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 Yeah. And she's, and, the camera as is, the camera does the same move two, three times. It starts on him and go and he's on the right and she's not in she's not in frame. She's in frame, but you only see the half of her face and it moves from right to left. It's almost like a almost like a Michael Bay shot. Like it goes, it swoops. Yeah. It swoops. But but it doesn't go back and forth. It goes boom, goes to him, and then it cuts to her face, and then the camera comes back to the same position it was in one and does the same movement again. Did you like that? Like I that was a little off putting. I, a lot of that later on part of the party seemed to be, the camera angles didn't bother me as much as the lighting kind of seemed bright in some scenes, dark in other scenes, lit romantically in some scenes with her. 
with Meredith where the backlighting kind of hit the back of her hair. Mm-hmm. So the blonde kind of lit up very similar to movies from the early 60s, late 50s, which I found a little off-putting compared to the rest of the film, which is a little more um, realistic and, and, and filmed with more realistic lighting. Mm-hmm. The swoops I didn't really notice, just more the romanticness of the shot. And are we supposed to assume that he didn't know her? Like she, he met her that night. Yes. Okay. Which I was that my, my note is what's up with Meredith. She seems crazy. Yeah. She is pushing hard. I would not be okay with her at all near me. Well, she here's a little th- too much. Here's the thing though. I, I was trying to, he's paranoid and, but he's in surveillance and he's not somebody who deals with one-on-one uh, conversation, contact and right. conversation. So he's not, she's obviously playing him because she ends up taking the tapes yeah. from him, but she's clearly playing him. And I don't think he understands that because he doesn't deal with that. So I, I believe that mm-hmm. um, fun fact about when he wakes up the next morning, he goes and checks the tapes and they're not there. And he's like, oh, that bitch. Right. Is that what he says? He says, yeah, bitch. Yeah. yeah. That scene was a re- not a reshoot, but it was an added on shoot. But they had to do it. At, at, obviously, they already shot the movie. They actually shot that on the set of Chinatown when Chinatown was shooting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was. In- and then I'm thinking, I go, where were they in? What part of Chinatown? Like, what what scene in the movie did they use? Because it looks the same. <laughs> So did they not have a scene where he wakes up or they don't did have they, a, they don't have a I do a different Maybe they scene. did not have a scene where he actually goes and sees that it's missing or maybe they had to reshoot it or whatever. Or maybe, oh, you know what it could have been with that? All the extra plot lines, maybe the plot lines, maybe like the niece was there and he finds out that the tapes are missing while she's in the shot. Maybe, maybe like, had well, to we're not going to have her character. So. Right. That's that, that's probably true. That could be true. Because like I said, if four and a half hours to an hour and 53 minutes. They cut out a lot. That you would, Yeah. And you're going to probably have to reshoot some stuff because you cut out some stuff. Yep. Absolutely. I love the fact that he's 44. He's actually 42 because he lies. But oh no, he's four. He was 40. Hackman was 44 when he shot this. Right. I'm 44. I do not look like Gene Hackman. No. Like he looks like he was in his 50s or 60s. Yes. And I mean, like, I know that's like, I guess, tough living. I don't know. He's a hard pressed man. But also, I mean, I think that's also what they were going with. Right. When Coppola wanted him to, you know, look like a, what was the weird, it's a weird word, a nednik? Oh, nudnik. Nudnik. Yeah. It's a, it's a. Which I think I might've heard once or twice yeah. before, but yeah. A Yiddish word referring to a person who is being, uh, who is boring and a pest. Yes. But he's got that weird looking mustache, you know, mm-hmm. his well, clothes were out of style. Well, that's. A, who knew that? I didn't know Yeah. They had now. to do all, they had to do all that. Also, he had a tough time playing call because at the time Hackman was somebody who was outgoing and personable and stuff like, not saying that he's not now. But uh, well, I don't know. I never met him. <laughs> so he had to actually become socially awkward. He had to learn how to be, but that made him moody on set. Made him like, you know, not somebody you wanted to be around. Is that the beginning of Grouchy Gene Hackman? Was this uh, the, was like, this come the on. thing? We've had this conversation before about <laughs> older actors who are just are, are fed up and, and tired of, you know, just what maybe their Hollywood has become or what their experience in Hollywood has become. You know, they don't want to deal with it anymore. I get that. And we've, we've talked about that before ad nauseum. I know. We either had the long conversation. With you know, and I will side with Hackman and, and Tommy Lee Jones and all of them because uh, I've seen their work and their work is great. You can be a great actor and a grouchy person. Sometimes you need a little grouch. <laughs> so Harry's last name is Call. Yes. C-A-U-L. But it was supposed to be C-A-L-L. So there was a typo, but they kept it because C-A-U-L call is a birth defect where the membrane surrounds your head. So that's why Harry wears that translucent raincoat. So they have that added to there. And when in the scene when Bernie is kind of asking him, like, how'd you do it? How'd you record it? How'd you record? 
he is seen through that sheet of plastic. I was going to mention that. I love right. that. I love that symbolism in that scene. They wouldn't even strike up a conversation if there was another boat even on the horizon. That didn't stop Harry, though, did it? No, he recorded everything. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Why? Why? No reason. Three people were murdered, that's all. Harry's a bit too modest to tell us how he did it, though. Uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, this turned into tea. I like the fact that a typo leads you to a creative choice, several different creative choices in the movie. Yes. That's, I don't know if that's called a happy accident, but that's being adaptable. And that's like, oh, you know, using what you have there. It's finding a new theme to your movie. Absolutely. It's finding a new aspect that you didn't Absolutely. think of before. Instead of flipping out, oh, it's ruined. You, you actually roll with it and play with it. And it's fantastic. Never mind the fact that they couldn't get financing with this movie until Godfather was a hit, which... I don't know, man. Okay, but yeah, this movie is really. I mean, again, look at the films of the seventies. Now all of a sudden, it matches up against them. In nineteen sixty six, when he originally had the outline for the film, you know that this wasn't really what people were going for back then. That distrust, that conspiracy angle. You know, nineteen seventy four. A yeah, The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola. He's going to make something great. They probably didn't know at the time. The plot actually is something. People you read the script go, All right, I relate to that. Yeah. Or that's going to be like this movie or that movie. So, because I always ask this show, I always ask this question because I always want to make sure we ask this question. Yes. Is Do you think this movie is forgotten or why do you think it's forgotten? Because it's old. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's 1974. It was nominated for Best Picture, but did not get it. Francis Ford Coppola is more well known for Godfather, Godfather. and Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. Those are the two movies you think of. Even sure. I think of when I think of Francis Ford sure. Coppola. Even, I mean, this movie's got a ton of stars. And I'm not saying I'm the most well-versed in, in film knowledge um, that comes before me. But well, I didn't know about this guy. movie. Yeah, exactly. I'm a you're film, a film guy. guy and you didn't know about so it. many stars and I had never heard of it. That's why it's important to look back. Exactly. I, I think, I agree with you. I think it's not forgotten for people that are into cinema or people that have you know been watching cinema or seek out you know, movies yeah. uh, by, by famous directors, you know, whether you like Martin Scorsese, you, you want to make sure you go back and watch, watch all his mean films streets right. and, and taxi driver. I'm sure everyone knows taxi driver, but I'm sure a lot of people don't know he did mean streets and you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So I think it's, it behooves people who are, if you're into Francis for Coppola, who hasn't done really a lot lately, pr- primarily probably because he's 80 year old. He's 80 years old. He's old. Excuse he's, me. I, he's 80. He's 80 I believe. Oh my he, God. Hold on. <laughs> he's 80 years old. Okay. There we go. You Thank did you. it. Thank oh, you. Thank you. I think he's also spending a lot more time focusing on his wine business sure. as well. Sure. Well, it's probably less hassle because I mean, you, you mean he, obviously he couldn't get money for this. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I think a lot of people that don't know a lot about filmmaking or a lot of people that enjoy movies, um, Maybe just go to the theater to watch movies. Don't know about it, which is a shame because they should have gone back when the Will Smith movie came out. Yes. Enemy of the state. Now it's not Hackman is an enemy of the enemy of the state. He plays a different character, but it's while I don't say that it's him, it is alluded to by not just in the movie because they use some of the same not wardrobe. They use some of the same, the same, there are photographs of him from the original movie. They use the photograph from the conversation in this movie to show him as a younger man, because in enemy of the state, he's an older paranoid guy that has been off the grid for so long that Will Smith kind of connects with and helps him and stuff like that. Yes. 
So it, while it hasn't been come out and said that, yes, that's the same character, it is a lot of people think that that is supposed to be the character from the conversation or maybe better is imagine what happened to the character from the conversation Harry Call as he got older. Right. Yeah. Worked for the NSA. Right. So you, th- more, more you would think that when people watched Enemy of the State, they would have gone back and checked out the conversation. Had I known, I would have. Because I, I like Enemy of the State quite a bit, too. So I think also that shows you the difference between uh, filmmaking styles of a movie like Enemy of the State, which is directed by who? Is it Tony Scott? Uh, I just looked it up. I'm on it. I'm on it. But anyways, as you're looking for that, I think you see the difference in styles of the era in terms of Enemy of the State and a movie in the 70s, like The Conversation. I can't remember when Enemy of the State came out. Was it late 90s? Late 90s. 1998 was Enemy of the State, and it was directed by Tony Scott. You are correct. Nice. Look at that. Good job. I'm very proud of myself. (laughs) Very proud of myself. So, yeah, so... I, I think you're right. I think it's forgotten because people just don't. It's so old. It's so it's 40, over 40 years old. 45 years old. 45 years old this year. Yeah. Well, how come that didn't get a, and TCM presents the conversation? I don't know. It's got a ton of people in it. I'm a little ticked off about that. I mean, honestly, it's, it's a, it's a great piece of cinema. Let's go here. What are we doing here? I also love the, the music in this was fantastic. Because I had a note at the beginning that said the music was really weird because it was kind of the happy, upbeat piano music, which is a little strange for your, uh, you know, this is essentially a spy thriller. And then as it goes, the music becomes slower. And then at the very end scene, when he's looking for the bugs in his apartment, the music has become, uh, has switched to the minor key and has slowed down quite a bit. And I was like, it's the same theme, but change. And I, I love when that you take a theme that runs throughout your whole movie and you change it up to beat the scene. So I really enjoyed the music in this film. I thought it was very interesting and unique. And well done. I read that the listening bug was supposed to be in his uh, saxophone strap. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that's what they were saying was in the sax. Nice. Cool. <laughs> there are a couple things I wasn't a huge, huge fan of. In sure, movie, go ahead. Go for um, it. Jerk. <laughs> one of them was, I feel like his saxophone playing and his his being Catholic was just kind of thrown in him to give him two personality traits because he's so closed off. It made it feel like they needed to give him two personable things that we know of. And I wasn't the biggest. Uh, the fact that he doesn't want him to say Christ and stand. Yeah. Curses. And then he goes yeah. to confess. I feel like it really didn't do much for the movie until the end when he didn't want to break his Jesus statue. But then he does. <laughs> so it's. And it's rubber. Yeah. I didn't get that. It's rubber, like he yeah. can't smash it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's a remnant of the four and a half hour cut. Maybe that's a little bit more. They did a little, a little bit more, more with explored, his faith. Maybe. So I feel like it wasn't really necessary in this. Like, or it didn't do as much as it maybe should have. You probably can make a point that Harry is, uh, has Asperger's maybe. Maybe he has a that. disorder, a social disorder that way. That's oh, maybe back in 1974. It's probably undiagnosed. undiagnosed. Yeah. So you can make a case for that. But I hear what you're saying. So I, I feel like those were just kind of tacked on personality choices. And there we, we've done other films as well where that sure. happens. It's not something that's, it didn't really detract from the movie. I just felt like it was unnecessary. And then the other thing is kind of there, which is also another relic of the seventies. I feel the depiction of women in the movie. Okay, go ahead. Just seem like objects. They just seem manic. They seem to be begging for Harry's acceptance when he gives them nothing in return. for. So the you're talking part. about, Terry Gar's character. Terry Gar's character, and then Meredith, although then Meredith is yeah, turned Meredith out to be a spy, playing, so, so she's right. playing him. 
But I feel like that's just kind of. I, f- I, I didn't feel like women were represented very well in the film. Sure. And so that was something I noticed, which is, I think, a relic of, again, the time. I, I didn't understand um, Amy's character, Terry Gar's character, Amy, because I th- I was under the impression that she was a prostitute. I, I didn't know because she's See, in her I didn't be- know either. The way, the way the room was, she's in the bed. She's already in the bed. Like, she definitely doesn't have a lot of money. He's got a key to her apartment. He's clearly bugging her phone because she's like, I think you're listening to me. Right. I mean, a girl, girlfriend, maybe a prostitute that turned into a girlfriend. I don't know. I uh, See, Honestly, the conversation he has with Meredith, I thought he was talking not about Amy, but about a relationship he had in the past. Like maybe he was once married. And it, it I, can't, I don't know. I think. I don't know. But I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, I. I Even when they were having the party, he's not. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's fine. What, what's up? Nothing. When they're at the party, he's not. Uh, the It's weird. Like, oh, let's hang out. And then I'm thinking, why are we going back to your. Uh, with all this your place, information. you don't want well, anyone, want to, anyone, know anyone anything. to know anything. Yeah, but you're gonna let you bring them all back here. Your rival. Also, I'm not as paranoid as him. And as soon as he put the uh, pen in his pocket, as soon as Bernie put the pen in Harry's pocket, oh, yeah. I was like, "That's a bug. Yeah, That's a bug. Yeah. Take that pen out of your pocket. Come yeah, on." Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing, the one thing that popped up to me was he has a dream of the hotel room, but he doesn't get there yet. So he's he, when they say the Jack Tar. Yeah, do you like the dream sequence? I know I don't understand it in terms of he I don't understand a dream sequence in any movie where you show me something that the character has not witnessed yet or you you know he hasn't been in right. the room so how does he know what the room looks like uh, he is having a dream sequence of uh the director's bloody hand well you assume it's something else but the director's bloody hand on the other side of the glass which doesn't end up happening until later right so you you're seeing stuff that you didn't see yeah exactly so I don't understand that. I, I never, but I never understand that in movies when you show me something that the first that the main character hasn't seen yet. Right, I agree. I thought it was a little out of place. The dream sequence was a little out of place because all of a sudden now he's having a dream sequence and we're already almost done with the film. Mm-hmm. I do like the fact that in his, it's only in his nightmares that he can reveal personal stuff about himself. When that, he's when he's walk, you're talking about that when he's talking to Anne. When he's talking to Anne and trying to stop her from going anywhere and trying to warn her, uh, he starts giving all the information about like how he was very sick when he was a child, how he mm. fell in the bathtub and almost drowned, mm-hmm. all this other kind of stuff. I think that's for us. I think that's for the audience. Oh, absolutely. It's for the audience. But it's it's very interesting. I think that he can't actually divulge any personal information unless it's in a nightmare. Like that's how closely guarded he is. is sure. Telling anyone about himself is a nightmare for him. Right. Then the rest of it, yeah, I didn't like it. And the fact that it was so late in the story when you've never introduced that trope before. Right. It's like, now, now we're having dreams. <laughs> He's already slept before. Don't give him a nightmare now. Yeah. Again, that might, I didn't know about the four and a half hour cut until I researched this movie. When we we're talking, we we're going to talk about it this week. So I'm wondering if a lot of the stuff that we're questioning, whether that's because, you know, they had a lot, they left a lot of stuff. More off dream the, sequences yeah, and nightmares, maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure there was probably more with Stan because that didn't go anywhere. His friendship with Stan. Yeah, I mean, he got him back kind of as a friend, but he left. He left him, and right, just like that. I felt like that could have been more to that. Although John Cazale did a really good job, I like Stan a lot. Well, he's a he is a a very good actor. A lot of people don't know about him. They uh, think Fredo, which is what I think. Right, about. but like he is instrumental in uh, helping a lot of actors back then become who they are. Like he was a a, a a good friend, a good person to be around who, you know, always talked film, always talked acting. 
I mean, he was, he was, he was with Meryl Streep when he passed away. He passed away of cancer too young. She was like, she, he, she always credits him helping her in her, her career. But like he is, he was a fantastic actor. Right. And I, honestly, you can make a case that he's forgotten because, you know, he passed away so young, but he would have been in all these movies. We just watched the Irishman. If he was still around, he oh, would have been in that been movie. In Absolutely. Absolutely. He yep. would have been in, he probably would have been in Goodfellas. He would have been in all these big movies. That all these other people, and but hey, that's that's how it goes. It's life. I understand that, but he is somebody that uh, a lot of people don't know about, and he is really, really good, great, even. Yep. Did you like the toilet scene? Because I got a real shining vibe from that when he's when he's looking at the toilet. I have a problem with the whole end after he has the freak out. Okay, at, at the, after the once freak out he's in, the, in okay. the hotel and he has to freak out, even like right before the like seeing the hand of the glass. Once he gets to the hotel, our main character, who has in the hour and the thirty-five minutes previous, now all of a sudden in the last twenty minutes of the film, he's become an unreliable narrator. Sure, now we can't trust anything he sees. It's like the toilet backing up, backed up with that much blood, and you clean the whole place that well, well. He also becomes part of. You have to imagine that with the last shot of the movies, that surveillance camera look. Mm-hmm. He becomes part of what's being surveilled. He's no longer uh, the perceiver. He's no longer surveilling. He's become part of it. He's I get participating. that. He's a participant. So, I mean, maybe those rules, I know you're saying it, it. So is now, are we now looking at him the way he looked at the couple where now we're getting couple I, of he's versions? He's part of the story. He's made himself a participant in the story that he was following. So now it's not that he's unreliable, but he's no longer with you alongside you. He's down there. So he's going to make mistakes. All right. But we see the bloody handprint on the window. He goes and he looks at the toilet. He comes back later on and he's not in the toilet. There's a body on. There's blood everywhere in this super clean apartment and they're wrapping up the body. Which one was it? What do you mean? You lost me. At the very end, once he realizes he's been duped. Okay. He goes to the hotel and there's blood all over the walls of that hotel room. There's Robert Duvall's body on the bed. They're wrapping up. No, that's that's not. He didn't see that. That's I think he's at the doorway. No, they're showing. I think he's. No, he's there. They show him looking into that doorway. No, that's not. That's not real. That's him imagining. That's him seeing what he thinks happened. Because there's no way he can see. He goes in there. Then he was never in the hotel with the toilet. Yeah, He was. That's what he's. Again, again, what you are seeing is is basically Coppola showing you what has happened, but also Hackman realizing what has happened. It's, it's, it, he's not there, but it's, again, it's my, my thing with saying like, how does he have a dream sequence? So he's uh, not there with the toilet. He's not, he's there with the toy, lifts it up and all the water and the blood comes out. And then what, what the movie's showing you is this is what has happened. But he does. He's just thinking but that he's not, he's not there. The coroner is taking away the body on the bed. He, that's just that's just so the showing. coroner never took away a body on the no, bed. No, 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 no. It's, all no, that is just I don't. No, no, no. That's muddied and weird. I don't. It, you're right. They could have no, done you're that. You're right. Better. He's he is <laughs> he is he is there when he sees the toilet. Yes, and it overflows with blood. I get and, that. And but he is not there. He is just he is seeing what we're seeing is what happened to him. He's only he may be piecing it together. Like you know what I mean. Like it's. <sighs> I get that, and he has the visions of it. I get, I get the visions of of now, all of a sudden, the things that we were hearing when he was listening through the this wall. Is, this, now we this can hear that. This is really what happened, yeah. But then there's a shot of him looking through the door, right, which is open, and the coroner is there taking away the body he, wrapped in plastic on the bed and the blood on the walls. He's That's what I don't get. But, but he's not there because because what happened because what what the reality is, Mike, is the he has a car accident. Exactly. That's, right. that's the reality. Then why are we seeing the coroner taking him away? Because that's just something that he's imagining. Why he's, would you imagine a coroner and the detectives again, taking Again, I'm going to go back room. to what I said before. It's 
it's perception versus reality. Uh, I don't it, know if it, I like that. No, listen, it's <laughs> it's like it's not clear cut. It's absolutely not clear cut. So don't. What I can tell you is reality is he finds the blood in the toilet. Okay. Okay. Then he goes and he see and he and he sees the the newspaper article that says he's the uh, guy dies in an accident. Okay. Goes there to kind of like look at him face to face. They call him when he goes home saying, we know, you know, you know, for your sake, don't say anything. And then he rips up his room, plays the the sax and we're out. Right. That's his reality. Everything else is he's perceiving what really happened in that room. He's imagining what, what has happened. It's not, it's not real. I know. It's weird. Well, on that note, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's one other thing I I think I wanted to bring up and I, I lost it. So. That was it. Yeah, I don't got anything else. So, so like mind. I said, on that note. But you did like it. Oh, absolutely. That didn't that didn't stop me from liking the movie. It's, the entire movie is very well done, including the end when he once he realizes he's being bugged and stuff like that, and the paranoia that goes along with that, calling his house phone and all. It's just one three minute scene does not ruin the movie for me. Sure, it's not film breaking it's just odd right because they didn't use that that before he's an unreliable narrator in the way i was looking at it i understand well i don't think he becomes an unreliable narrator i think the movie becomes unreliable uh in terms of its linear storytelling in terms of its reality realistic storytelling it dives into a little bit more of a of a perception or a little bit more of paranoia right which i almost wonder if that's because the original film was thought of as a, a was going to be a horror film starring Marlon Brando. Right, it was. Well, again, so I wonder if that well, end kind of well, we're talking seems yeah. to still keep that kind of horror motif, that almost shining like um, Kubrick vibe. Well, what we're talking about maybe again another situation where the four and a half hour cut comes into play here, and they just they have, there's more of that. Kind right, of, I mean, right. It, it it's pretty significant that there was four and a half hours the original four and a half hour cut of this movie. I wonder if it still exists somewhere. Yeah, probably not. They never do. They never do. Recorded over, burnt up. Yeah, I mean, it would not be. In, out, it wouldn't even be in terrible made, quality. It, right made now. into gu- guitar clips or not clips, guitar picks. <laughs> you know, Coppola was probably at his house and he's like, "Oh God, I have so much money. Burn those, burn those conversation movies. <laughs> I don't need that anymore. It's getting cold in here. Um, you know who I am? I'm FF Coppola. Well, that'd be a good nickname." The cop, the cope, FF Copes, FF Copes. I don't think he'd like that though. If we ever said that to him, not at all. He'd probably slap us around. I'd slap <laughs> you around. Uh, he could probably hire somebody to slap us around. My last note, and then we'll be done. Okay, unless you have it. more notes. That is that yeah. is all. I My have last note is that fucking mime. The beginning of the movie. <laughs> that man, that mime. Oh. Like I did a movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I did a short film for New York Film Academy. No, you've told me about it. But you've never seen it? I've never seen it. All right, I got I to gotta try to get you a copy or <laughs> show it to you. It was called... So our final project had to be... Um, we shot in 16 millimeter film, which was the, the same cameras that they used in World War II. I mean, I know now that they're all digital, but like we were using these cast iron cameras. And I'm actually pretty proud that we use these cast iron cameras. <laughs> had to edit the 16 millimeter film, all that stuff. So the movie I did was called The Day the Mimes Pushback. And it was about a guy who played by me who is walking through a downtown area and I see a mime and I, I like push him or something. I make fun of him. I push him, whatever. And the next day I'm walking and the mime has a bunch of his mime buddies and they chase me down. My, my, (laughs) my 
girlfriend at the time was in this movie who was now my wife uh was in this movie so she played one of the mimes but like man fucking mimes man i i they're just they're so annoying like I, <laughs> when, so in the beginning of the movie when they're walking people are walking around i just i immediately because i you know i haven't seen the movie in a while right my eyes immediately go to that stupid mime. mime and he's just kind of like following around. I'll be like, oh man, screw this guy. I was waiting for Gene Hackman to like punch him or something. I like thought he was. Gene Hackman I mean, for so long. Honestly, I probably would just like play it off and pretend and ignore him oh, and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But oh, deep down, man, man, I want to take that <laughs> mime out. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, that's my final note. That fucking mime. Fucking mime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sweet. Uh, so I guess that is all. That is all. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please follow us on our various social media outlets. It's uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just look for Forgotten Cinema. Look for the purple logo. You can also find us, obviously, on our website at ForgottenCinemaPodcast.com. And you can shoot us an email at ForgottenCinemaPod at gmail.com. We do take suggestions. Mm-hmm. There's a contact form on the web, on the page as well. Uh, we've already done a couple of suggestions, I think last year, excuse me, last season and then this season. Um, but uh, we always want to hear from you guys and, and see if, you know, if, if you want to hear us talk about a certain movie or, or whatever, you know, whatever you'd like us to do. Right. We'll, 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 Butler will do anything. <laughs> <laughs> For money. <laughs> um, and uh, join us next week when we'll be talking about a movie that I believe if it came out 20 years ago, 30 years ago in the 80s. Uh, we will be talking about this movie much like we talk about Back to the Future, uh, Gremlins, like the classics. And that is the movie Tomorrowland starring George Clooney. That movie, I really, I'm going to tell you right now, Mike, I like that movie. I know you like and that it, movie. I know you like that movie. You don't like this movie? Oh, yes. Oh, no, I like this Please movie. Please say you don't like it, Mike. No, I like it. Oh, okay. But I don't like it nearly as much as you do. Excellent. So <laughs> next week, I know we've kind of been a little tame this week because we both enjoy this movie. And honestly, when we do older movies like this, it, most of the time they're hits. They're big time movies. They're really good. So I know yeah. we may gush over these movies, um, but with good reason. These movies are, this is like, this is classic cinema. Uh, and and yes. I can appreciate that. And I'm not going to sit here. I mean, besides that goddamn mime, I'm not going <laughs> to sit here and, you know, trash it. Because it's it's a really good movie. I like it. Not, but but we do have a little fun when Mike and I don't agree. So true. Uh, if I will, uh, I'll get ready. I'm going to get my, yes. I'm gonna I agree on Tomorrowland, but I, I, I don't think it's perfect. Okay. Well, you can go, uh, you know. I know. Blow it out your ass. So anyways, so that's next week. (laughs) (laughs) That is next week uh, for uh, Forgotten Cinema. Do you have anything else? uh, Do you have anything else to add, Mike? Uh, Just, you know, if you really like us and want to be a walking billboard, go to our merch store and uh, buy some merch. Correct. That's right. We we have recently launched our uh, our Forgotten Forgotten Cinema Cinema line. Okay. Get your season one and season two shirts before they... uh, they go away. They, they go, go back into the vault. Put with into the, the, uh, the, the forgotten <laughs> cinema vault. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll come back out on Disney Plus. Oh. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so as always, I am Mike Field. I'm Mike Butler. And this has been Forgotten Cinema.